Welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today we're going to talk about ENCODE and uh, I'm joined once again by Jacob Schreiber who is intimately familiar with ENCODE and in fact we discussed uh, ENCODE a little bit in the episode 32 with Jacob. But today we're going to dive much much deeper into this project. There are couple of reasons for that. First, um, the project recently hit a major milestone, which we're going to discuss in a minute what, what that is. Uh, but also, we have a great guest today. And uh, Jacob, please go ahead and introduce her. Yeah, of course. Uh, today, we have with us Dr. Jill Moore. Uh, Jill got her PhD from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, working with Dr. Peng Wang, who's actually somewhat of a collaborator of mine. She's great. Uh, so Jill is now a project manager for the Data Analysis Center at the ENCODE project, working with the same group. Her work has spanned several topics. A common theme among it seems to be the collection and curation of these massive genomics data sets, which are really pushing the field forward. Recently, she's overseen the release of a bundle of papers describing the findings of ENCODE phase three. So she's, and as the first author of the flagship paper, we thought that it would be great to get her opinion on ENCODE and to get a, the description of that. So, Jill, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So I guess to start off with, can you give us a brief description of what is ENCODE? Sure. So ENCODE technically stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. And the goal of the project is to try to categorize um, the full regulatory landscape of the human genome, as well as other organisms that may help us understand disease state, um, including mouse. And what's interesting is that back when the Human uh, Genome Project was going on, one of the interesting findings was that only a small uh, percentage of the genome actually encodes proteins. It's less than 2%. And what surprised scientists was how low this was, considering all of the diversity in cell states that exist in the human body, as well as the large number of diseases and phenotypes um, that we as humans have. So the initial thought was that we'd find a protein that would be mutated or disrupted in each uh, sort of disease or disorder, but we know that's not the case. So the goal is to try to figure out what does the rest of this genome actually do, and a, a decent percentage of it actually controls the expression of these genes in different ways. Some act as switches, some act as tuners, um, and so that's really what the ENCODE project is trying to do, is to trying to define this like, regulatory landscape across the human genome. And in order to do this, um, we're in a great sort of technology age of being able to actually survey genome-wide different states of the genome. Um, so there's groups that are able to perform these high-throughput assays, um, looking at things such as which regions of the genome have proteins that are bound that may turn a gene on or turn a gene off, which regions of the genome um, have different markers that are indicative of chromatin that's closed and collapsed, um, even assays that look in sort of 3D space, which regions are interacting with one another. So by taking all these different assays and performing different computational um, sort of algorithms and, and integrative processes, we're able to try to define this map of regulatory elements across the human genome, across different cell states. That's really interesting. When you say cell state, can you elaborate on what exactly you mean? Sure. So it's actually a very generic term. Um, 
in terms of what I'm referring to here, but we look across, for example, different cell and tissue types in the body. So we look at, uh, for example, a T cell compared to a B cell, a T cell compared to a hepatocyte in the liver. But we also look at, for example, different um, embryonic progression. So in uh, ENCODE 3, there's this nice embryonic mouse series that looked at day um, 10 embryonic development all the way through birth and actually surveyed uh, mice at these different time points. Um, there's also work that's being done on cells that have been treated with different chemicals, for example, and looking at their, their sort of response um, to that, which may mimic sort of different um, processes in the bodies, for example, your immune cells responding to uh, an external stimulus. So it's really still say can mean sort of any of these uh, different modalities that a cell can be in in the human body. That's awesome that you're able to get such a, like a rich catalog of what's going on in the body. I think that commonly people think of um, they think of when they think about different cell types and tissues, which I guess is not so common in the general populace. They think about these large organs we have, like skin or heart. But the truth is, as you're pointing out, that not only are there so many different types, like you were pointing out, you were talking about T cells and B cells, which seem very similar, but are actually quite distinct from each other. But there's actually like much more of a gradient, as you were saying, across development, across differentiation. There's so many different types of cells. Yeah, especially we do a lot of work as well in the lab with brain. And especially with brain, you know, you have your traditional, you know, neurons and non-neuronal, but even within neurons, all the different classes you can have and each have a different role. And I think that's what's really interesting is where the field's going is more towards single cell methods to actually take a chunk of tissue and be able to dissect out through these different methods an individual cell's state, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about I'm really excited about the way that the field is going. But a lot of those analyses are only made possible through these comprehensive efforts through projects like the ENCODE project, that no one PI can collect all of this data alone, in part because they just don't you know, get enough funding. But um, it requires a massive collaborative effort in order to collect comprehensively this amount of data. Yeah, it's definitely true, because um, each of the mapping centers for ENCODE 3 and ENCODE 4 generate hundreds of experiments on a wide variety of cells and tissues. And a lot of them are really now experts in the field at their assays. So the quality of data that they generate is really amazing as well. So we've been uh, we've been mentioning phase three, uh, which would imply that there are other phases. Would you mind walking us through what the various phases of ENCODE have been and will be? Sure. Um, so historically, which I wasn't a part of, so I'm just speaking sort of from what I've heard. <laughs> um, so ENCODE 1 was the first phase, and that was a pilot project that looked at um, a fraction of the genome. At this time, uh, sequencing technology wasn't as mature. They did a lot of uh, chip uh, chip experiments and array experiments, um, a small percentage of the genome. And based on those results, they really ramped up an effort in ENCODE phase two, which ended in 2012, um, where they really uh, ramped up production, started looking at a lot of high throughput sequencing assays, started a lot of um, integrative analyses. Um, and so that had a landmark publication in 2012. And then I actually joined uh, Ziping's lab um, beginning of um, ENCODE phase three, which started in 2013. And that has gone through 2017. And the focus there was continuing to ramp up production of these different um, epigenomic and genomic assays, doing large-scale integration efforts, and really starting to actually curate 
um, annotations for the community to use, um, which was the focus of the paper that just came out. We're currently in ENCODE Phase 4, which started in 2017 and is going to end in 2022. And during this phase, there's a large focus on actual functional characterization. So there's groups that will actually take some of these regulatory elements that we've uh, predicted and will put them into different assays and actually test their function. Some of these are put into embryonic mice and will actually in, uh, survey enhancer activity um, at different stages of development. Some will be put into different cell contexts to see if they have activity. So that's really an uh, interesting focus for ENCODE Phase 4 is this whole functional aspect and functional testing. Yeah, so you've mentioned, uh, you've mentioned functional assays in the past, and now you're talking about functional characterization. Can you talk about the distinction between those two classes of assays? Sure. So the assays themselves, um, referring to like the uh, chromatin um, IP and things like that. Yeah, so these assays will sort of give us um, a snapshot of the biochemical landscape of the genome. So things such as chromatin accessibility assays, our common ones are DNA-seq and ATAC-seq. They'll look to see which regions of the genome are actually open chromatin. And while we know they're open, we don't necessarily know what they're doing in the genome. And so we have uh, computational tools to try to predict by looking at the DNA sequence and bringing in other data sets, but we don't really know for sure if it actually has a functional role in the genome. So what these characterization centers for ENCODE4 are doing, they'll actually take these regions and can actually put them, for example, in a uh, reporter that when you put into the cell, you can actually see if the little piece of DNA can enhance the activity of a gene. So you can actually test to see if it's an enhancer or not. Um, you can also test um, in other assays to see if it's a promoter, to see if it's a silencer. Um, so you can actually start testing function. Um, of course, each one of these um, functional characterization assays has different caveats as well. And that's sort of where the interesting part comes in, in terms of um, analyses. So some assays won't retain native chromatin context of the region. So you can actually just test it itself sort of in a naked DNA sense. Does it have function? Other assays, such as CRISPR assays, will actually be deleting things and changing things in the native chromatin context. Um, the mouse assays, for example, are looking specifically for enhancer activity across development, but can survey all sorts of tissues at once. So because not each assay is the same, we can start forming computational models and predictions to try to bring all the data together to get a better view of actually what's functionally going on in the genome. That makes sense. It seems like in ENCODE 3, you're trying to comprehensively get, as you say, these snapshots of what various cell types and tissues are like. And then in ENCODE 4, you're trying to do this type of like counterfactual reasoning, like, well, what if we change this? What would happen? Right. Yeah. So ENCODE 3 was really trying to get this sort of map of regulatory regions and integrate everything together. And we're continuing that for ENCODE 4, but now bringing in this functional piece and saying, okay, we know these elements have function. Can we refine our previous predictions? How can we make better predictions moving forward? So that's sort of where we have a nice feedback loop with the groups that are testing these elements. So then will there be an ENCODE phase 5 after that? There's not. So ENCODE phase 4 is the last phase of ENCODE. Um, but there are, of course, other collaborative efforts that NHGRI is going to be funding. Um, so it'll be the end of ENCODE, but there's a lot of other opportunities uh, for consortium work moving forward uh, through NHGRI and NIH as a whole. Are there any of those efforts that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so there's a new one um, that the RFA just came out. It's the Impact of Genomic Variation and Function. So it's the IGF 
IGVF consortium. Um, so it's essentially now trying to take what we've already known about regulatory elements um, and now looking specifically at variants and how changing a single base in the genome can affect um, sort of gene regulation as a whole and eventually lead to different phenotypes or disease. So that's sort of a, a now interesting take building off of what we've already done and, and now looking to actually apply it to human disease, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. That um, I mean, I know that there are these models out there that have taken ENCODE phase three data and tried to predict the effect of single variations. Like it started back with like BASID and DeepSea and then Basenji became a more complicated version and now there are a bunch of other ones. It seems like this is kind of doing that same type of counterfactual reasoning with variants that ENCODE phase four is trying to do with functional elements themselves. Right, exactly. That with IGVF that you're trying to say like, okay, well, you predicted that if this C turns into a T, that, um, you know, this will happen. Now we can go verify it. Right, exactly. And additionally into that, um, another sort of effort that our lab's a part of is the Psych ENCODE project, um, which is very similar to ENCODE, but all focused on uh, brain and psychiatric disorders. So what's nice is in terms of another consortium collaborative effort is taking what we've learned with ENCODE and now applying it in this very specific context as well. So it's it's the consortium structure is really nice. We're able to really bring in a lot of nice data and have these large integrative efforts and really get expertise from a wide range of scientists, which is really, really quite powerful. Yeah, I find the um I find that the consortium structure is generally a um it's generally a good thing as long as there's still flexibility for the individual PIs. Right, exactly. So we invited you on because a few weeks ago, they, there was a release of the ENCODE Phase 3 bundle. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so for the ENCODE publication package, um, it was a series of papers that were published in both Nature and other um, sister journals. Uh, we had a flagship paper um that was published that outlined the what we refer to as the ENCODE encyclopedia. And so this is actually a collection of annotations um, that the consortium has generated for the community, including uh, regulatory elements, uh, things such as uh, gene expression levels across hundreds of samples, um, 3D chromatin interactions. Um, so really just a nice set of annotations that um, the community can use in their own research. And so, and then part of that encyclopedia is sort of this registry of candidates, this regulatory elements that I referred to, um, that is close to a million elements in human. And they're both, they're sort of, we classify these elements based on what we think their putative regulatory role might be in the human genome, as well as, and we've annotated with which cell types they might be active in. Um, and then for a small handful of these, we, we did um, validate them with some of the functional characterization assays. And then we're hoping to continue to do that moving forward. Um, and then another large component of that project was actually building a, a user interface for the community to actually um, look through and explore these elements. Since um, while a lot of people do have computational skills in order to just you know quickly go through millions of elements and bed files and things like that, a lot of the users want an easy way to look at their region of interest and try to see what elements might be there. So uh, my colleagues, uh, Michael Pucaro and Henry Pratt, who are both um, MD-PhD students, they built this visualization tool called Screen that allows users to search by genes or genomic loci and actually look at the regulatory elements uh, that are predicted to be in that region. 
Can you talk about how all that data produced by the consortium, uh, how the data like physically looks like? So is it scattered around all the various databases or is there like a central repository where I can download all the encode data and also maybe what types of data um, do you have, like what file formats you use, etc.? Yeah, so um, one part of ENCODE that's really nice is there's a, a group funded that's the Data Coordination Center. And so this is led by Mike Cherry at Stanford. And so they've done a really nice job of curating all of the ENCODE data and having it in one place and having a nice metadata system that allows you to actually access both in a um, sort of a web GUI format, but then also programmatically the thousands of ENCODE data sets that there are. So it's really nice. Everything's in one spot. Everything's version controlled. You can see the exact pipeline that was used to run and process the data. Um, so in terms of consortium efforts, that's something that's sort of vital to have um, in order to do any sort of large-scale integrative analyses. So they've done a really nice job. Um, and then for the data that we use is we use everything that's run through the ENCODE uh, uniform processing pipelines. So that's another unique aspect about ENCODE is we've taken a lot of time to actually build pipelines that are standardized with really rigorous uh, quality control metrics for the community. And we make these pipelines publicly available. But all the data is uniformly processed through these same pipelines. Um, so all the integrative um, analysis we use drives data from that. So personally, for creating the registry, we use um, a combination of we use bed files just for, for peaks and intersections. We use a lot of bigwig files that have signal. Something that's sort of interesting is trying to deal with sort of signal from different types of experiments. We've had to figure out how to, for example, from a chromatin accessibility experiment, you just have sort of this raw signal that comes out. Whereas for a ChIP-seq experiment, you also have a control that you can do, for example, a p-value or log fold change over. So trying to integrate different modalities together um, is a bit complicated, especially from some of the data was generated back during ENCODE phase two, compared to data that's generated now during ENCODE phase three and four, we have just better technology um, and better ability to get um, higher sequencing depth. So it's a bit um, always a balancing act of trying to combine all these different data sets together. Yeah, so maybe you can walk us through. Uh, let's say that I have run an experiment. Um, obviously, it would be a poor quality, but let's say that we want to, you know, put it through this processing pipeline. Can you, for maybe like an accessibility, a chromatin accessibility experiment, what is the output of such an experiment? And what are the various processing steps that are done before you get the final product that is used and put on the portal? Sure. So uh, for chromatin accessibility, um, whether it's DNAs or TaxSeq, um, the lab will provide the FASTQ sequencing files to the DCC, and they will run through the pipeline. The pipeline for chromatin accessibility will uh, deal with doing sort of quality trimming of the reads themselves and doing some initial quality control metrics. We have uh, minimum sequencing depth requirements for all of the experiments. They'll then align all of the reads to the genome. For ENCODE Phase 3, we've moved everything um, to the HG38 version of the genome, which was also a big effort that the DCC um, ran. And then for mouse, where every everything's up to the uh, MM10 version of the genome. So really trying to keep pushing the field forward to move up to the most current versions of these genomes. Um, 
Then, so from this alignment, we get uh, signal files. They can turn from the BAM files that from the alignments into big wigs for signal, which we use for a lot of our analyses. And then for, in the case of chromatin accessibility, DNA is called um, using a, a algorithm called Hotspot from John Stam's lab. And a TaxSeq we use called uh, using Max2, which is um, using a, a pipeline that Anshul Kandanji's lab has written. Um, from there, we have the bed files. Um, for some data sets, um, including uh, transcription factor ChIP-seq, for example, those bed files then go through additional pipelines. Um, particularly if, uh, for ChIP-seq, there would be two replicates, and it goes through what's called um, uh, an IDR pipeline, where you actually compare the peaks called in each of the replicates and only retain those that are high quality in both sets. Um, so it's sort of an additional step that's taken from some other data modalities. Um, but there's, there's a lot of steps, essentially. It's quite rigorous, these pipelines. If you look at the transcription factor ChIP-seq pipeline, there's dozens of steps and QC metrics. Um, so they've done a really nice job in terms of trying to standardize these pipelines. Um, even in our lab, we sometimes analyze data from collaborators at UMass or whatnot. We actually use the ENCODE pipelines for all that analysis as well, because they've done a nice job. So it sounds like the the output from any one of these you know, they're called high throughput sequencing experiments because the output are a bunch of sequencing reads and you take them through all these steps in order to map the reads to the genome and then turn them into signal based on the number of reads that are, uh, that you see compared to a control experiment. One of the steps that I find particularly interesting is that, uh, you have to map these reads to a reference genome. You have to, you know, say where on the genome do they align? And yet we know that there are some issues with the reference genome. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in terms of sort of the history of the genome project is that there really is the genome as it is, is actually an amalgamation of many different individuals. So that's sort of one interesting fact is it's not even just from one person. It's sort of a composite of many different people. There's also issues as you get close to sort of the centers and ends of chromosomes. There's a lot of repeats. And so this is essentially just big chunks of the genetic code that's just repeated over and over and over, which makes them when you map things to it very difficult because you don't quite know where that might go. Um, additionally, on top of that, um, I think just recently there was a publication where they finally, with sort of these new long read methods, finally from end to end mapped the X chromosome of the human genome. But that's being done now in 2020 compared to when they first said the human genome was done back in the day. So it's far from complete. Um, I think one interesting aspect as well that is being explored more is the idea of sort of the personal genome and aligning things once you know the actual genetic background of the cell or tissue that you're getting the data from. So there is an effort um, through NCALD called the NTEX project that's working with the GTEx consortium where we have individuals where we have access to their genotype information. So they're actually building personal genomes for each of these individuals and mapping the reads to that. And you actually have a lot better uh, success rate mapping than just to the regular um, uh, HG38 genome. When you say you have a lot more success mapping, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, so... 
for the experimental reads, um, everything's not always necessarily perfect when you're doing an experiment. Sometimes you have, um, whether it's the um, PCR introduces an error or uh, the sequencer has an error, you're, the reads that you get from the genome never 100% always match to where they came from. So usually this is no problem. But if your genome is slightly different enough, your reads actually won't be mapping anymore. Um, so when you use the personal genomes, you can actually get a lot higher percentage of your reads mapping to them in the correct spot compared to just using um, sort of the out-of-the-box genome. And and so you mentioned this issue of uh, personalized genomes. Um, and uh, if Jacob wants to conduct his experiment, right, obviously he has a choice of um, which samples to choose, which samples to conduct the experiment on and uh, his results might um, significantly depend on uh, which which samples he, he chooses. So uh, does the consortium tell Jacob what uh, samples he should conduct? Like um, maybe he should use some kind of cell line so that it's mostly you know reproducible. Or maybe he has some proprietary samples. Maybe he works at a clinic and he wants to perform some experiments on the patient samples, for example. Um, but obviously, I guess it's part of a metadata issue, but also the whole genome becomes sort of metadata, right? Because the, um, the phenotype might depend on, on, the, on the genotype. Yeah, so that's a good question. And it's actually something that's very interesting in sort of a consortium organization. So for ENCODE phase two, there was actually a lot of focus on cell lines because they were sort of developing a lot of these methodologies and um, integrative analyses. So for ENCODE phase three, there was a lot more focus on getting tissues and primary cells. And there's actually an entire working group as part of ENCODE that actually tries to identify which um, cells and tissue types they want to study. And so um, when each group sort of writes their grants, they have a focus on what they find interesting. So they may have a type of tissue or cell type they're interested in looking at, but then they're also open and expected to collaborate with other groups to try to get as many experiments on the same cell and tissue types for integrative analyses. Um, so it's definitely something that um, there's a lot of effort on doing that uh, for ENCODE Phase 3. But for ENCODE Phase 4, um, they had a whole group of trying to identify to what is sort of missing from the current catalog. Um, so, you know, by looking to see what other cell types are out there that we haven't maybe assayed yet, what tissues are out there, what do people have access to? Um, so like you said, there's some proprietary samples. Uh, certain groups have access to some really nice tissue samples or maybe some uh, different immune samples. Um, so everyone sort of comes together and says what cool things they can have access to. And then they actually share those samples amongst the other data production labs to try to get as many experiments done on the same sample types. Yeah, I think that's one of the awesome collaborative parts of it being part of a consortium like this. So now we've kind of walked through how uh, an experiment is processed. Can you tell us a little bit about just all the different types of data that are now available as part of ENCODE phase three. Sure. Um, so we have, starting off, we have chromatin accessibility data so in the form of both DNA-seq and ATAC-seq data. 
for both human and mouse. Um, we have lots of histone chip seek experiments um, for both human and mouse. There are transcription factor chip seek experiments. There are 3D chromatin interactions uh, in both the form of high C data as well as chia pet data. There was a, a novel um, effort for ENCODE Phase 3 that's continuing as part of uh, ENCODE 4 is the Encore project, which is looking at RNA binding proteins. Uh, so this is, they have uh, sort of a, an array of uh, CLIP data. So that it's called eClip, which actually is similar to a transcription factor chip-seq experiment, but instead targets RNA binding proteins and pulls down the uh, RNA that they're attached to. And then um, with that, they did a whole bunch of knockdown RNA-seq experiments for the RNA binding proteins and did in vitro um, uh, Biden-seq to actually see in vitro what motifs these RNA binding proteins bind to. Um, so that was a really neat data um, collection that was unique to ENCODE Phase 3. There's also, um, for ENCODE 3, there is a lot of RNA-seq data that was produced. Um, and additionally, um, a, a technique called Rampage by Tom Jungeris' lab that's similar to the CAGE assay that maps the five prime ends of um, RNA-seq transcripts. But uh, Rampage is nice because it's paired ends. So you can actually connect it to downstream um, exons of the exact transcript it's linked to. Um, so I think that's an overview of most of the main data uh, produced. Um, I think there's, oh, there's also uh, DNA replication data as well, which is interesting. Yeah, so a, a ton of data was produced, and a lot of this was produced on um, coordinated biosamples, so you can really do some interesting integrative analyses. Yeah, there was a ton of data that was produced. You were saying, I think there's like several thousand tracks of data. Yeah, I think it's 6,000 total we're at, so a lot yeah, of data. That seems like a... <laughs> Seems like a lot, especially yep. because each one of those tracks is genome wide, and so you have one measurement for each one, and combined with all the data Encode already had. Oh, I forgot! I forgot one too, um, which is actually the largest in terms of uh, processing is DNA methylation data. So we have both array data, but then also the whole genome bisulfite sequencing data, which is huge. So because it's pretty much every position. And like very specific that they, if you have a histomod, that generally is the size of a nucleosome, right? Right. But methylation data is the size of like a single like cytosine. Right. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I was really interested about this RNA binding proteins because I've in the last two years or so I've gone really into looking at DNA binding proteins like these transcription factors and such, and they seem super important. But now you have this whole other class of proteins that don't bind to DNA itself; they bind to RNA. And RNA is just floating around and doing stuff. And that this is made even more complicated because, you know, the DNA is just sitting there. The genome is just like, oh, I'm accessible. I'm not accessible. But depending on what's going on in the cell, you have all these alternate splicing events happening. Can you talk a little bit more about all the complexities involved with a, an RNA binding protein assay? Yeah. So I think sort of one aspect which is really interesting is sort of how the RNA ends up being attracted to that particular RNA binding protein, how it's attracted to that particular RNA. So for DNA and transcription factors, usually it's a sequence motif um, that it sort of prefers and ends up binding there. But for RNA binding proteins, some have sequence motifs, but not that many do. So it seems to be a lot more structural, two-dimensional motifs, which I think is really interesting. Um, and that seems to be sort of an untapped... Um, side of RNA binding protein prediction in terms of where their 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 binding sites are. Uh, so that's really interesting. Additionally, um, a graduate student in our uh, lab is looking at 
sort of these RBPs genome-wide. And what's interesting about them, unlike transcription factors, is that their expression levels are fairly uh, similar across all cell and tissue types in the uh, body compared to transcription factors where a lot of them are very highly specific. Uh, so it's just interesting. They obviously are doing a lot of different regulation, um, but out of the, the paper that was uh, published um, uh, from Brent Gra Gravely's lab, essentially they see some differences, but a lot of similarities between the two cell lines that they looked at with these RNA binding proteins. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. It's a whole sort of untapped side of regulation because while we have the genome side, once the mRNA is transcribed, there's a ton of different regulatory activities that still happen before it even gets the ribosome and translated. Right, exactly. Like it, it, It's incredibly complex. And so something I was wondering is, do you have to control for the expression of a gene when you're looking at these types of assays? Because presumably, if you have very abundant transcripts, you're going to get a stronger signal than if you just have fewer transcripts, but a similar amount of binding. Yeah, so um, for the RBP data, um, Gene Yo's lab made all of the eClip experiments, and they have a, a peak collar that takes into account the um, essentially the RNA expression level as a background. So like, for example, for ChIP-seq TF experiments, you have this background control. Their control essentially is looking at the RNA expression. Um, so it's it's harder, but it's definitely harder than a regular just classic genomic experiment. Anything that's dealing with RNA is always a lot more difficult um, to work with. Um, but they spent a lot of time really optimizing that assay, and they've, they've done a really nice job with some really interesting data. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, the one of the new frontiers in doing this is trying to really understand the connection between all, you know DNA and RNA and protein, more than just like DNA yields RNA, which, you know, encourage a protein to something, but how all of those are interacting in the cell in order to regulate gene expression. Yeah, exactly. All right. So uh, it seemed like a, a big portion of this project was collecting these thousands of data sets, which seemed like a massive undertaking. And you mentioned that one of the components of this was not just providing all this data and, you know, dumping out a folder somewhere on the internet saying, you know, have fun. It's also providing this, this uh, tool called Screen which helps you visualize these experiments. I think that this tool is awesome because there are a lot of times, and even I, like as a, I, you know, I'm a computational person, but if I want to just look at a bunch of stuff, I don't really want to have to code a bunch of things. I just want to be able to pull up a website and look at a few of these tracks. Can you tell us a little bit more about Screen? Sure. So Screen essentially is a database of these uh, candidate cis regulatory elements that we've defined. And what the database enables you to do is to search a particular region or maybe a variant that's associated with a disease that you're interested in or a gene itself. And we'll return a table of these elements that you can then essentially perform additional queries on or look into more information. So things that people might be interested in is I'm interested in this gene. I want to know all of the regulatory elements near it that are active in heart. So what you can do, you can search for that region screen and you'll get a table and then you can actually search uh, filter by I want all things active in heart and want all things active in liver, etc. What's nice is, too, is you can uh, investigate these elements further. We've imported a lot of ENCODE data and community data. So you can look at a, a region. You can see, OK, these are the cell types it's active in. You can see the histone marks and transcription factors um, that are at that site as well. You can look at the expression of the nearest gene. 
you can look to see if it's connected with a particular gene, either in three-dimensional space with uh, Chia Pet data, or if it's linked, uh, for example, with an EQTL so that it's associated with changes in expression of a gene. Um, and then we also have, um, since we have this in both human and mouse, you have the ability to see if this region is conserved in mouse and investigate, is, does it have the same sort of function possibly in mouse? Um, so it's really about bringing all of the data together in one place. Um, so like a one-stop, uh, one-stop shop, uh, for all genomic and epigenomic data. And so this is a, this is a website, this is a tool. Yeah, so this is a website uh, that Henry and Michael have uh, created. It's essentially an entire database. Um, it's available online, but then also they've set up an API for people to programmatically um, query the database as well. That's awesome. And so uh, a few a few times uh, so far, you've mentioned this term, candidate cis-regulatory elements. Can you tell us what those are? Sure. So these are regions in the genome that we predict to be have regulatory function. Um, and the way we define them is we look across all of the hundreds of samples that we have, and we identify uh, regions that are consistently open in chromatin across. Um, we then take these regions and annotate them with different other data sets, such as uh, histone chip seq data. There's different histone marks that are associated with promoter activity or enhancer activity. Uh, and we also annotate with um, the transcription factor CTCF, which is known to have a lot of roles in 3D chromatin associations and having insulator activity in the genome. So overall, we, we identify these categories. We have promoter-like elements, we have enhancer-like elements, and then we have these CTCF elements. And so these are essentially, so these putative regulatory roles they may have. Um, we have just under a million of them defined in human and about 300,000 in mouse. Um, and for each one, since we have this process of kind of looking across all these cell types, we're able to give it a unique identifier, as well as look at its activity across all of the cells and tissue types. I'd say that's sort of the unique aspect of these CCREs, because a lot of other previous analysis, you may identify regions individually in each cell type, but then it's really difficult to compare across cell types because things might be in slightly different positions. But this way, you can actually have one position that's consistent across everything. You have an identifier that you can refer to in a publication, and it will stay that identifier, sort of like a gene identifier. It kind of maintains that across versioning. And then it's a it's an easy way to sort of compare things across um, different types of biosamples, but then also across time as well. So each one of these is a, like a portion of the genome that you say, like, this is involved in regulating the expression of a gene nearby. We, we anticipate it is. Uh, it seems like each one of them, as you were saying, is that uh, there the are three classes. One of them is that this is a promoter. It's like the beginning of a gene. Or it's involved with regulating the expression of a gene. Or it's CTCF. So maybe you can explain what this last one uh, kind of is. Like, why, why does CTCF have its own class and what is it? Sure. Uh, so CTCF is actually a really interesting transcription factor. It has a lot of different roles. Um, but one of the important roles is it acts as sort of a scaffold in the genome for 3D chromatin contacts. Um, so these particular elements that are the CTCF only ones, they're not promoters, they're not enhancers, even though CTCF is known to bind at those as well. They're likely regions where, uh, these CTCF is binding and then forming these three dimensional sort of loop structures, um, in the genome. And so that has a lot of, um, 
sort of can be involved in sort of gene regulation of bringing distal regions closer to uh, promoters. It could also be sort of turning, having regions of things that are on a lot and separating them from regions that are off. Um, so there's a lot of sort of importance, it seems like, in this 3D chromatin structure. I have to say, it is very still debated in the field exactly what the role of all these things are. Um, I'd say right now, the whole idea of enhancer-promoter interactions is very interesting. Um, it was thought for a long time there had to be sort of this three-dimensional loop structure, but now there seems to be a lot more of this sort of uh, condensate talk of actually having phase changes that bring enhancers closer to promoters. So it just, it's, I think what's interesting is the field's still rapidly evolving and changing based on the new evidence that we get. So it's a very exciting time, I think, to be studying gene regulation overall. I like being on the outside of all of this genome architecture stuff because it's interesting to see these papers where it's like, it's definitely this. And then, you know, a few months later, it's definitely not that. Exactly. I think there was one paper with the, the Degron paper where they, you know, knock out CTCF for a while and they see all these changes, but it actually doesn't end up really changing much of gene regulation at all, which is pretty interesting. So yeah, it's, it's a wild field, I think, right now. I think that they... That was actually one of them that I was thinking about. That there's this one that said, if you knock out CTCF, nothing happens. And then there's another that said, if you knock out CTCF binding, everyone dies. Yeah, exactly. And I think the distinction was that nothing happens like for a small period of time. Yeah. And then if you just let it run for longer, then everything eventually dies. Right. Uh, which I, I guess is always true. But in this case, it was a much more controlled, um, a much more controlled study. So I, I think I think that's really interesting because CTCF is definitely very much an outlier when people talk about regulation and to see this like distinct compendium of like potential regulatory elements have three classes, promoters, which are well-known, enhancers, which are well-known, then CTCF. So, you know, yet another outlier involving that. But again, because it's such an outlier biologically. Yeah. And even the whole, in my view, the definition of promoter and enhancer, I feel like has definitely grayed so much over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, so we kind of went with this definition of sort of the classic groups. Um, but something that we're always looking forward to is biology doesn't work that way, where it's just very clean, you know, classes and groups of things. There's definitely probably a spectrum of elements that have promoter to enhance their activity. Um, there's a bunch of papers that have come out showing that promoters can enhance the expression of nearby genes. Um, we've been looking a lot into sort of the non-coding RNA landscape, and a lot of our strong enhancers turn out to be promoters of link RNA genes, and whether or not those link RNAs have a function or not, or it's just the active transcription or that has a role, we don't really know. But it seems that it's not really so binary. It's just this kind of spectrum, depending on what transcription factors are binding there. Right. Certainly, like when you're trying to analyze this data, it's one of the challenges is that everything is continuous, right? Like, uh, that's, it's not just that, like, it would be the case, like, a gene is expressing a protein, and that protein is going and influencing something else. And when you get all these cells in bulk, you get all of this stuff happening at different stages in that continuum. And so trying to be like, oh, well, this is, uh, you know, everything here is independent from everything else. It's not really the case that everything is connected, uh, unfortunately. I think that in a, in a different way that one of the most eye-opening things to me as more of a computational person was when I was talking with Vic Myers uh, and he was talking about how one of the original goals 
goals of ENCODE, the way that he phrased it, was to figure out the regulatory activity of every nucleotide in the genome. And to me, I'd always viewed enhancers as like, it's this window, it's like, it's this 20, it's just like 30 or 40 KB, sorry, not KB. Uh, it's, it's this like box on the genome um, that this area is distinctly an enhancer and the regions next to it distinctly aren't. When really it's the case that you want to figure out what every single nucleotide is doing, even if it's just helping to stabilize a protein who is then influencing gene expression. Right, exactly. We had an interview with someone else about this paper and they had brought up the whole junk DNA discussion again. And it's always one of those things where when you also are defining function, like you said, it could be the actual site where a protein's binding, but it could also be a space where it's in stabilizing something, or it's important to have a certain number of nucleotides in between two elements for other interactions to occur. So it doesn't necessarily matter what that base is, but it's important that that base is there. So I think there's a whole spectrum of different functionality and importance of each nucleotide in the genome. And as we know, too, it differs from cell type to cell type as well. Um, So it's definitely not a very easy thing, like you said, just defining these boxes on this linear genome, and that's the end of the day. It's very complicated, but it's. I feel like we're in a good spot in terms of, uh, historically, in terms of all the technology that we have now kind of at our fingertips and the computational power that we have for things. It's very exciting to be in the field at this point in time. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Usually, I, re- I reserve the, the annotation of junk DNA for anywhere where my models don't work. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think that obviously this is like a phenomenal amount of work that not only were you, you know, the first author on the flagship paper, which was a bunch of work, but you were also trying to herd cats with getting all these other publications out. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like trying to organize this entire effort? Yeah, so I'd say for one, it's definitely a lot of people organizing. So while I play definitely a part in it, um, there's definitely a lot of people that were helping herd along. Um, so I think for just to start with, um, we had really great uh, project management leadership at NHGRI. Um, so the program officers were really helpful in providing um, sort of uh, logistics support and setting things up. And they were a really great group to work with. And having such engagement by them, I think, really makes the project enjoyable um, overall and really um, really increase the quality of the product at the end. Um, I think something that's difficult with consortiums is sort of timing of publications. And that was something, honestly, that was difficult this past uh, round. Um, being part of sort of this flagship paper that I will say was a long process. We almost, I want to say, went through many reviews within the um, consortium itself before even sending out for review. Um which it's tedious at the time, but you end up generating a better product in the end. And since it is a product that's representing the entire consortium, it's something important that everyone's on board with. So that, of course, is a long process because there's 500 authors on that paper. Um, so other groups, we wanted to try to have this uh, coordinated effort, but other groups that may only have, say, a 20-author paper, that process is going to be much faster probably than the 500-author paper. So it is a bit with timing wise of trying to coordinate all these efforts to come out at the same time is difficult. Um, and luckily everyone was really a good sport about it. Uh, there was a couple papers that had been sitting 
um, waiting around for the publication package, but they were really good to kind of wait for the whole group. Uh, one thing that's really advantageous, at least these days, is the ability to have uh, manuscripts up on a bioarchive ahead of time. So that was one good aspect was that groups could have that up there. Um, because unfortunately, even if the publication package is delayed, people's grants and uh, tenure and uh, faculty um, applications are not delayed. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's it, the consortium stuff. It is a bit like herding cats sometimes. Um, but there are a lot of benefits. And I think what's interesting is a lot of different perspectives which are brought in, um, which things may take longer, but I think you end up with a better product at the end. Yeah, I um, I think that the entire time I've known you, you've been trying to push out uh, this project. And reading over the final product, it definitely seems worth it, like you've mentioned, that when the more people you collaborate with, the more like very specific detail you're able to have on a larger number of areas and thus the larger final impact you're able to have. And I think that because ENCODE is supposed to be a community resource, that it's really important for it to be as like done correctly as possible, else any of those errors kind of propagate into all the future work. And so maybe you can talk about how this day-to-day job of a project manager, project coordinator looks like like what is it specifically that you do yeah so there's a lot of conference calls for any consortium um probably i'd say four days out of the week i have a conference call related to encode so which before um all the covid stuff it was probably more of a unique activity but now it seems like everyone's on conference calls for everything um but yeah, so the way ENCODE will work is there'll be different working groups that work on different things. Um, so for example, there's an analysis working group that tries to coordinate different um, analyses um, across the consortium. There'll be like a biosample working group, which I had mentioned before, trying to choose which tissues and cell types we want to study. Um, then there's also, for example, an RNA working group, um, uh, different all, all different types, uh, 3D uh, genome organization working group. So kind of different, um, depending on what your interests are within the consortium, you join these different groups. Um, there's also what's nice for ENCODE 4 is you have these sort of jamboree groups, which are much more trainee-led and sort of the trainees in the trenches actually um, uh, sort of moving these groups forward. And these are really based on what the trainees are interested in looking at. So things such as establishing a single-cell uh, taxi pipeline, I'm part of one that's looking to annotate uh, transcription start sites better across the genome, things like that. Um, so between that, we have a lot of Slack communication constantly on um, the ENCODE Slack channel. Um, so there's a lot of that going back and forth day to day. And then I'd say also, you know, I have some of these administrative roles, but then I also do a lot of still research actively myself. Um, so and we have, since this ENCODE paper took a while, we kind of have a lot of follow-up analyses with our registry of CCREs. Um, so we have a paper that we're working on looking at DNA methylation at these CCREs, uh, looking, starting some analysis with looking at link RNAs, um, doing some transcription start site annotations and whatnot. So kind of, since we've now made this resource and it's published, actually using it uh, to learn new biology. Um, so that'd be like sort of a sum of the summary of the day-to-day. It's a combination of consortium, logistic stuff, but then also still doing a lot of research. 
Yeah, and how do you manage to balance uh, those different roles of yours? Yeah, so I'd say something, it's definitely a lot of multitasking. Um, so it's, it's a constant balance of things. Um, I think that's for actually anyone in a consortium. It's always a balance of doing stuff for the group and the greater good, but of the community. But then also it is important to not be selfish, but still take interest in your own personal research interests in your own projects. And I think that balance is really important. If you go one way or the other, it doesn't end up being very successful overall. So I will say it's taken time to get a good balance. Um, so it was nice. I kind of started as a graduate student and slowly got more responsibilities in the consortium as I went. Um, so I kind of learned how to balance a bit. Um, and then so by the time I took this position, um, I've been here for almost in the current position for almost three years now. I kind of had a, a good feel of sort of the dynamics, of the consortium and how things worked. So it's always a balance, though. Do you ever worry that it's kind of slowing you down, that if you didn't have all these responsibilities, your research would progress at a, at a faster rate? Or on the other hand, maybe this gives you some opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, so it does, without a doubt, does slow things down than if I just did 100% research all the time. But I think the benefits definitely outweigh it in terms of uh, just the collaborators that you have the opportunity to talk with, I think is really almost one of the number one things in terms of when you are going for a grant, you need letters from people or you need someone, especially us being computational, want someone to run a few experiments to validate what we do. Um, so it's sort of making those collaborations is really, really important. And being on those conference calls and talking to different people is important as well. So while, you know, just by volume, you probably could get more papers out if you never had to go on a conference call in your life. I think it's probably for the best to have that balance. Um, and I think what's nice is you get to hear presentations and work by people in the field that are doing different things. And I find that inspires me to maybe go a different direction or think about something a different way, which is really interesting. Certainly one of the things that I like about Uh, being a part of ENCODE is that you get to hear about research from the people themselves, that if you just try to keep track of all the papers that are coming out, you have to go through and try to interpret it and read about everything and keep track of all of it. But if you have these regular calls where people are talking about their work, it's so much easier and more personable to keep track of everything that's going on in the field. Yeah. Um, so then what's next? What's next in terms of for me or for, yeah, for, for me? So I'm hoping... Well, I should say, I eventually do want to become a professor somewhere and run my own lab. That'd be the ultimate goal. Um, as we know, things are a little bit crazy this year in terms of the academic job search. Um, stuff is available, but it's a little bit odd. Um, so I'm hoping within the next year or two to start the faculty search and application process. Um, I'd like to have a lab. I'd like to be still continue computational biology, probably a dry lab. I've, I've tried the wet lab stuff before. I am just not, I don't have good hands for wet lab at all, <laughs> but have a, a computational lab, continue collaborating. We do a lot of collaborations right now with even people at UMass. I like that aspect a lot of even just on a project or two, having close collaborations, um, but continuing to work in sort of this genomics, uh, big data field, I think would be the ultimate goal. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And obviously right now you're probably planning your you're probably planning your vacation because there's so many good spots to go to. 
Well, luckily I'm in New England. We have our little New England bubble we can travel within. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Joe. I thought that was an awesome uh, description of ENCODE. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next with you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. 